All right, welcome to Disrupt TV. And of course, this is the green room where we actually do introductions of our guest. We have a special co-host, Liz Miller. Welcome. And of course, our amazing Oh, producer, Super Vala. Super Vala? Super Vala. Ooh, look at the effects. Yeah. Of course, we've got My Apple effects are everywhere. I'm sorry. I noticed. That <laughs> Happy is like to Vala. Easiest thing. So, <laughs> but we are here talking to two amazing guests, and we discovered they are nerds, but we'll explain that in a later program. Um, Sunil, where are you coming in from? What are we talking about today? And that is an amazing mic. Oh, hey, thanks. Just trying to keep up with you, Ray. Uh, I am coming to you from Santa Monica. Uh, we're going to talk about what you want to talk about, you and Liz. But, you know, uh, I just uh, put out a book called Everyday Dharma, and I'm happy to get into that with you. Look, I'm looking forward to being confident, creative, and caring. So awesome. very, very cool. Sonny, where are you coming from? What are we talking about? Yeah, hey, uh, great to be here. I'm San Francisco, California, and I'm here to talk about uh, all things crypto, which is never a dull topic never a dull topic and we'll figure out what you came in on btc we'll talk more about that later <laughs> so very cool well with that here we're gonna turn it back to you l we'll kick off the show and then uh, we'll see you on the other side so go ahead all right three two one <laughs> Welcome to Disrupt TV. I'm here with my amazing co-host, Liz Miller, who does all things CX and more. And of course, I'm Ray Wong with Constellation Research. Um, Disrupt TV is our weekly podcast that I normally host with Mala Ashar. We are 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. every Friday, and we get A-list guests, latest enterprise news, hot startups, insights from influencers, and much more. Please follow us on Disrupt TV and, of course, on Twitter or X at Disrupt TV Show. With that, we've got an amazing guest to kick it off today. Liz, it's Sunny Singh, co-founder and What's CEO up, Sunny? How you doing? Great to connect. We're so happy to have Great you to here have you. because it's one of our favorite topics and Bala <laughs> is going to be so jealous uh, given our uh -huh. secret interest. We're right in time for Thanksgiving conversation, right? It is. And I may see you later this Thanksgiving. Sonny <laughs> is a well-known advocate for crypto since he joined BitPay in 2014 as its chief commercial officer. And of course, he's at Beluga. BitPay has processed over 5 billion crypto payments and raised over 70 million in top venture firms, including Index Ventures and Founders Farm. You actually got crypto to be used in places like Microsoft, AT&T, Newegg, WeWork, and thousands of other merchants especially my Bitcoin ATM, accepting crypto payments. And of course, Sonny's a freaking guest on Bloomberg and CNBC and has spoken at tons of crypto and fintech conferences around the world. So, but in your capacity here, co-founder and CEO of Beluga, we're super excited to have you here. And of course, more than welcome to be on the show anytime. 
So Thank welcome. Thank you very much. Thanks, guys. Great to be here. Sonny, I got to ask you. I just got like, I'm going to just jump in, Ray. I'm sorry, because I'm so <laughs> curious about when it comes to crypto, because it's like half time crypto is that thing that my husband is like, I hope you don't mind, but we're mining things. I'm like, I don't know what that is. <laughs> it's like they're elves. Okay, cool. Um, but then a lot of people will be like, oh, I'm in crypto. It's, it kind of feels like 2000, like I'm in the internet. Yeah. You're like, it's like the same kind of vibe. So I've got to ask you. I would love to know more about your background and how you got into crypto. Yeah, it's a great question. It was a lot of wrong turns, to be honest with you. No, um, <laughs> no, 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 don't tell us that. Don't tell us that. So I've actually been in Silicon Valley for about 20 years, founder, operator, advisor in many companies. And in 2010, actually, uh, I was involved with a fintech company that's backed by Andreessen and Horowitz. And so we Coinbase had just started, crypto had just started off a little bit. And when I was leaving the company, the team at Andreessen said, hey, we want you to stay in the family. We backed the company called Coinbase. Why don't you go join them? And I was like, yeah, I don't want to be in crypto. I this is a new thing. I'm not interested. And it was 2013, 2014. So I've been one of the first employees at Coinbase. I'm like, yeah, no interest. And then crypto started taking off a little bit. And I started seeing all the news around that. I started looking into it more. And then the team at Index Ventures and Felices came to me and said, hey, BitPay is a great company. You should go look to join them. Yep. And I still wasn't really that interested. And they kept talking to me more about it and why this is a great idea. You should go do it. The price of Bitcoin was $1,000. It was going to $2,000. So I joined. BitPay was the largest crypto company in the world in that time in 2014. It wasn't even crypto. It was just Bitcoin. They call it Bitcoin back in those days. And I was like, great. This is great. I promptly joined. The price of Bitcoin crashed to $200. It was nuclear winter for two years. Crypto winter for two years, actually. It was doom and gloom. But then I just stuck it out. And then eight years later, you know, it, it turned into something really exciting, actually. But I was one of the few, I was the first fintech executive to cross over from fintech to crypto. So it was a big deal. Interesting. Yeah, no one had done that before. In those days, it was only the, it was only BitPay, Coinbase, Circle, Ripple, and like blockchain.com, kind of the only real companies that were out there. And so all those founders didn't really, couldn't understand why everyone wasn't using crypto yet because they're very technology focused. And I was the only one who came and said, well, what, what do I use Bitcoin for? What am I, what am I doing with this? Why am I, and I kind of asked those questions because of that. I was kind of like the, the front person speaking at all the conferences, panels, Bloomberg, CMEZ, because I could relate to the crowd because I'm like, these use cases you have, no one's going to use it for that. And really try to figure out what people would use Bitcoin for and all that kind of stuff. So that's kind of my job for the last nine years is trying to educate and bring it to people like the mainstream who couldn't quite figure out how it was working before because it's very technical focused, very hard for the product experience. And we're still not there yet. And we still have a lot of room to go. Yeah, we're, we're definitely seeing that. And if you think about like that shift that's been going on, right? I mean, it's just finding the right use cases, finding the right product market fit. Like, how do we get this there? Uh, and and that intersection between where crypto sitting and where Web3 is happening, that's a very, very exciting area, right? We, we see that as, as one of the big trends. Uh, but, you know, a lot of people think crypto's dead. Like, it's not happening. It's not moving. What are the trends that you're seeing in this marketplace? And you and I, we all hold, we hold, all hold some some version. We won't say how much of this stuff. <laughs> We've lost how much of this stuff to think when you started. So yeah, no, and, and I think um, you know, crypto obviously went through its downturn last year, right? It was pretty down the media and all that stuff, and and now you're slowly seeing it come back. At, you know, the price of Bitcoin's up two x this year, let's say, right? Yep, um, yep. Again, it shouldn't be dependent on the price of how big crypto is doing, right? It should be about the ecosystem, number of developers, number of activities. Said. See, like in three years ago, every one of my friends was leaving Google, Facebook to go start crypto companies, right? And now they're all leaving and starting AI companies, right? And the VCs <laughs> have pivoted from crypto to AI. So if any time crypto was to die, it would have been this year. 
from all the bad things that have happened. And yet Bitcoin is still, crypto is still moving strong. And everyone's kind of getting ready for next year. And that's really what's happening. And you might have a perfect storm next year and that you could have the Bitcoin halving is happening in April of next year. Yep. You could have the ETF being approved. Yes. Yep. You think will yep. happen. And you could have also lower interest rates and a better economy next year. And if all those things happen, you could see the price of Bitcoin, which I think will happen, catapult to break the all-time high of 69000 but also touch $100,000. And if that happens, you'll see Bitcoin become you know $1.5 trillion currency. The whole industry become a $3 trillion ecosystem again. You will see much more hype and marketing around that stuff. But in the meantime, you're seeing great companies already working on products in Web3 games, in staking, in lending. All right, NFT projects are not dead yet, right? So there's a lot of stuff happening, even though you're not seeing about in the media. There's a lot of big companies that have, you know, teams spun out of Activision that raise funding to build Web3 games. Now, professional teams are working on projects that will eventually hit somewhere. So wait, real quickly, before we get, get to some other areas, I want to talk about decentralized exchanges, because that's an area you guys talk about in finding investments or people are looking at it. Like, is there a space for that? Do, are we going to be a ton of exchanges? Are you seeing consolidation in the decentralized exchange market? So, so, so the, the, the centralized exchanges are like Coinbase and Gemini, the ones we know and all that, right? Yep. And those are, you know, those, depending on where your base have regulatory issues and all that kind of stuff, right? Then there's a lot of decentralized exchanges that have popped up all over in the last five years. And they still have to fight the regulatory issues, right? And, you know, they're saying, hey, we're decentralized. We don't need to worry about American government rules and all that kind of stuff. And the U.S. government, SEC, is saying, no, you do actually have to worry about that. That's still an ongoing battle. But actually, you're seeing, you know, if, if the U.S. government does block it, they would just go offshore anyways. But you're seeing that decentralized exchanges are popping up all over. And that's really where people think things like DeFi and all that are really going to be the future of crypto, actually. Yeah. So I don't yeah. think that's yeah. being put back in the box, so to speak. Yeah, how else will three-letter agencies move money around? I'm exactly. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> womp womp. Speaking of three letters, and you did kind of open the door, Sonny. You did kind of, you said, like, crypto kind of went through a little bad press over the past, you know, year or so. But you got some, I just, I, like, I, I need you to spill the tea, Sonny. I, we're just gonna, we're gonna have a little spill the tea moment, you and I. Sure. You actually were an investor in FTX. So yes. this is something that Early. you saw, like, yeah, like, this is something that you saw not only, or maybe didn't, or maybe it was hidden from me. Like, I don't know. Like, that's why I gotta know. What, what happened? And I guess why I'm asking is because I think that everything that did happen with FTX, you know, with trials, I mean, it was so public and it was so salacious. And it was like these big, like, you know, National Enquirer style headlines. But it really did take a lot of people who were starting to ramp up to start to want to understand what crypto is, why they should be involved in it, why it is this something that they shouldn't just discount as monopoly money. And all of a sudden the interest, you know, from the mass populace just was yep. like, boom, because it's unstable and it did all this and there's this terrible guy. And oh my God. So what, like, how did, you know, how did you know about FTX? What, like, tell us what happened there and kind of where you are now. Like, what are your thoughts? Yeah. And, and right, we saw all those issues that people saw, um, you, you know, the crypto industry has a great history of going two steps forward, one step back, right? <laughs> you know, we're, we're great at doing that. Every time we make a little progress, we somehow shoot ourselves in the foot, right? And so, you know, FTX and SBF came on as a white knight for the regulators and all that kind of stuff. And he was, you know, they were moving very fast on things, right? So I spent a lot of time with them 
you know, a year and a half ago or whatever, they were trying to learn about crypto payments. So I was working with their team on how the payments flow worked of crypto payments and things like that while I was at BitPay and spent a lot of time with them. And then they, we kind of became good friends. They asked me to invest in the round. And I looked at their investor deck and all that kind of stuff. It was pretty funny because they literally went from like zero revenue to like a billion dollars in profit in like a year and a half, which was insane, right? And no one had ever yeah. seen those numbers before, right? And so the funny thing was, there was a couple you know, red flags. Like Sequoia was investing at the same time I was investing, everyone else. And there was a couple of investors who raised the red flag saying, there's no board members. Yeah. And Sam said, well, we're not gonna have any board members. He goes, if we do, we're gonna bring in like Elon Musk and Jack Dorsey. So that was a big issue um, for some investors. The other investors raised a red flag on, what is the relationship with Alameda Research? And they yeah. said, oh, completely separate, nothing to do with us and all that. Oh. And the reason why they asked that, though, was for a different reason. They wanted the FTT tokens that they had, the FTX yes. tokens. Those yes. were worth a lot of money. And the Solana tokens are worth a lot of money. Yep. And that was not part of this deal, actually. You were investing in FTX, not Alameda. And they're like, I want Alameda part of this, too. And so there were some issues around that. And the other really funny thing was, it was strikingly how young everyone was at the company. They were all like literally 26, 27-year-olds. And not that this was a good or bad thing, but none of them were like bankers from Goldman Sachs who went to Harvard Business School. They were like just ram tech kids who are now all of a sudden, they were running the fundraising process too, which was very odd, I thought, oh. right? And, and so that was interesting too, that the guys that were raising the money had never raised money before. But again, all they do is send you this deck. It was five pages. It was a very short deck, but it was worth, you know, the revenue was so amazing. How could you not say yes to that, right? And again, the FTX numbers that we all invested in were all great. There was yeah. no fraud there. The fraud was there. The F Alameda was taking the money out of FTX. So FTX business was actually unbelievable, right? And at least that's why I think you tell my wife every day since I lost you know, some money. <laughs> I justify why I made that investment. You know? <laughs> And yeah. like, what was going on with Why that? Why is this on People Magazine right yeah, now? Yeah, you know, so that was the other thing. And then, and then the other funny thing was, you know, I'm friends, I actually saw one of my friends a couple weeks ago at a conference who used to work at FTX, right? And literally, you know, Sam had his three people that, you know, they're all best friends. But That's the rest right. of the company was just working hard. And they were hardworking people that didn't right. have any idea what was happening. Oh, they were right? very innocent. They didn't know yeah. what was going on. Yeah. And, and also, like, yeah. when you meet the team there, you hear all the stories of parties, of penthouse, all that stuff. When you actually meet them in person, there's no partying. <laughs> like, there's nothing it at was all. Like three people in a penthouse, and everybody else was on their computers, like playing. Yeah, and they're like, in yeah. the penthouse yeah. because yeah. They're, they're in the penthouse because so they're socially awkward and they want to hang out with other people. Actually, not because they're having right. a really good fun time. They're playing Dungeons and Dragons, things like that. Actually, so it's a very Love different that. mindset and yeah. how they work. So when you hear the story about these great, you know, it's not one of that. It's not a fun thing that way as far as partying, but it, it was definitely an interesting time. It's a shame what happened because. They, they were fun to work with because they were always willing to try new things and be aggressive and all that, obviously. Um, but obviously that came back to bite them all, obviously. Mm. Wow. That, it, that, that's great. The one funny thing is they actually sent me a certificate, which I got in the mail like FedEx, saying you have a, you're a shareholder in FTX. You know, normally when you invest in angel company, you know, Ray, you probably invest in a lot of tech companies. Yeah. You very seldom get a physical certificate. You actually get the physical certificate. Yeah, you never get that. Oh my God, that's the cutest thing I've ever heard. It's yeah, like I'm when a, you I'm buy a, like I'm a baby a share of Disney. Like that's what they yeah. sent you. I'm a, an NFT oh, maybe or something like that. Hey, you don't that's the cutest. You're like, I can't do anything with it now. Now, like yeah, you could auction that in like five years. It'll like, that will get you your money back. Tell your wife we've got a plan. Right, tell your wife we've got a plan. Born here on Disrupt TV. And the other great part is that um, 
you know, you're seeing like people are getting 50 cents back on the dollar, 30 cents back. The, the, and I'm like, they send me all the emails and I'm like, oh, can I get that too? And they're like, oh no, you're an investor. You get zero back. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're an investor. You don't make money. Yeah, you're, at zero back. Back. You're, not, you're not here to make money. You, yeah. you just got a certificate. You yeah, stop that's it. it. Like, I got yeah, my certificate, nothing else. That's it. Wow. Wow. So, 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 so luckily, you, all the other guys that were part of the team have all went on to normal jobs because they weren't at fault. They had oh, literally no idea. No, no. Everybody yeah. knows that. Yeah. They know they were. They were all there. But he, the question for you is, like, this is all happening, right? You're at FitPay. You've done all this kind of stuff. And then you go form Beluga. What is Beluga? What, yeah, so great question. So Beluga so, is actually- In the middle of the worst funding environment <laughs> for crypto. <laughs> You're starting this startup. I'm like, what? That was not, yes, that was a harder move. Than <laughs> and actually, FTX had said they want to be an investor. So that was kind of a great idea. I'm like, oh, well, I'll go invest. It'll be great. And then luckily, yeah, that didn't ooh. work out. But, but no, uh, the, awkward. Yes. I'll the, take the, naming rights for stadiums for 400. I'll <laughs> <laughs> take the, the, the idea behind Beluga was exactly as we talked about, right, is helping people understand crypto, so to speak, right? Think of us as like, Credit Karma or NerdWallet for crypto, right? Excellent. So when you want to figure out what credit card or home loan or auto loan to get, you go to NerdWallet and they compare and explain it to you and you sign up for one of them, right? In, in crypto, instead of credit cards, home loans, auto loans, it's NFT projects, tokens, Web3 games, DeFi, things oh, like nice. that, actually, right? So very simple, very easy. And the name Beluga comes from, you know, in crypto, everyone wants to be a whale. Yep. Belugas are the smartest whales out there. So we want you to become a smart crypto whale. So yep. we're making everything very easy for people to onboard into crypto, but more importantly, for people that already have crypto. So there's 400 million people that have crypto in the world, and probably like 10% of them, a small amount, are actually really power users. The rest just buy and hold, and they're stuck having it in Coinbase, and they Google, how do I play a Web3 game, end up in Reddit, and get scared away. We want to take <laughs> those people that have actually jumped in the water, made the plunge to buy crypto, to actually figure out how to use it now. You know, it's not just buy and hold anymore. It's stake, play, earn, lend, use, right? And we want to start getting people to understand how to do that. People staking. We'll get there later, but yeah, it's <laughs> very, very important. So that, that was the plan behind it, right? And it's pretty funny because, you know, when you meet all the traditional VCs and what we're doing, they're like, oh, we get what Credit Karma and NerdWallet do. That's, I mean, no brainer, obviously. We just can't believe no one's done this yet in crypto for a trillion dollar industry. But Sonny, you got a stellar list of investors. Right. Uh, if I remember, it's like what Charlie Lee at Litecoin, Mike at, you know, Coinbase, the yeah, so, so. Brandon that was doing Kraken, Howard at Stockwitz, Jim at RPE. I mean, yeah. MoonPay too, if I remember, like Akash at MoonPay with the CTO. Yep. These are real folks, right? I mean, so and so you know, blockchain.com. I mean, like, these are serious. These yeah. aren't like, you know, like flying the pants, like, you know, we're not sitting here sitting in the middle of like, you know, Art Basel and c coming up with crap. You know I mean, like it's real. Yeah. Well, and, th and that was the, the, the plan was, you know, we wanted to show that we're backed by the executives, all the top executives in the leading crypto companies, right? Because there is a problem, right? And every three years, crypto crashes. And why is it crash? Because no one's actually using any of these products yet. Every Web3 game is launched and there's very few users right now. And as long as the price is high, everyone's happy. Well, the price won't stay high if there's no fundamental usage right. behind it. And the it. volume is not there. The volume and the transaction volume is not That's there. It. And, and so you're right. You're bringing trust back into the system here. Yep. So we're bringing trust. So all the executives. So, you know, Charlie Lee is the founder of Litecoin. We got executives from Coinbase, Kraken, MoonPay, Ripple, et cetera. And then we got all, a lot of crypto VCs investing behind us too as well. But then we got a non-crypto VC to lead our round, which is very important because to get that, 
during crypto winter in Silicon Valley to get a billion dollar fintech fund called Fin Capital to lead mm. the round was pretty remarkable. We really wanted to do that to build up the trust and credibility that what we're trying to do, that this idea worked for Web2, which is Credit Karma NerdWallet, and we'll yep. just bring it to Web3 and it'll be a lot in Credit Karma sold for $8 billion a couple of years ago. Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna interrupt quote Liz, but well, why not be in Dubai? That's where the center is. Like the Valley has no idea what crypto is. It never got it. It never understood it. It's still trying to figure it out. And it's like, thank God we rid of it. Hey, check out AI. It's still trying right. to figure out blockchain, yeah. let alone crypto. They're all Valley like, blockchain. Got it. Like New again? York got it. Like New York got crypto. London got crypto. Dubai is the center of all the Web3 action here. So. No, no, you're absolutely right. But I, I still believe that Silicon Valley is the hub, even though it's not for crypto quite yet. But okay. I believe all the best Web3 games, all the best engineers are in Silicon Valley. Plus, I have three little kids, and I don't think they wanted to move to Dubai. But for what we're <laughs> doing, uh, for what we're doing, again, we can be based here. But if we had a token, things like that, we'd have to be offshore too. And we don't have that kind of stuff. But it's definitely a regulatory issue we have to deal with and all that. And that's why our site, you know, we can get regular bank accounts and all that in America because we're actually, you know, we're just, you know, we're crypto adjacent, so to speak. We're not trading tokens ourselves and all that. <laughs> so it's much different from what we're trying to do. Well, if you make your way to Dubai, make sure it comes with like three spots at Dunecrest, America. And that seems to be where like, we're at. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, but here I guess this is, okay. So if I take this, okay. I, I feel like I'm crypto adjacent because my husband's much more into crypto and like I'm in it from a technology perspective and because like all of my colleagues talk about it. So like, I better figure this stuff out. But for someone like me, right, who's like, okay, this sounds interesting. Let me go figure this out. Let me kind of try to figure out where I fit in all of this, which I think is where a lot of people I talk right. to are when it comes to crypto. Like, it, I'm not in that group of like, it sounds too crazy. I'm not going to do this. It sounds like this sounds like something really solid, but we get nervous, right? Because there's a lot of whispering, if not yelling around regulatory issues, especially in the U.S., there are the horror stories of like, I lost my wallet and lost yep. a billion dollars. Like there's all these conversations. So when it comes to like predictions for, I would guess two groups, folks like Ray who are like, yes, let me show you all of my wallets. And then people like me who are like, I don't know where the wallet is. What are you predicting? Like from price, from where we need to be, from where the market is going, what would you tell someone like me who maybe one day wants to be like someone like Ray. Right. So our that I would say yeah. our site is perfect for you, Liz, right? Because you're going to come in okay. with a little bit of in interest, right? And then we can get you up with a starter backpack of wallets and tokens if you want, whatever you want, right? Think, we'll walk you through. Like, here's how you get a wallet. Here's how you stake it. Here's how you play Web3 game. Here's the sites to use. And we recommend kind of the best sites for each one for you to use, right? Versus you trying to go on your own and figure out on your own, go to Reddit and things like that. Because again, if you choose the wrong site, you could get your money taken away from you, right? There's so much fraud in crypto, right? So we want to vet out all the right partners, vet out all the right products and all that, and show you and walk you through this crypto journey to get you from where you are now to become like Ray. Ray's That's now terrified yeah. at the idea yeah. of Liz becoming like Ray. We just we need to have that <laughs> documented yeah. someplace that everyone's like, oh God, please don't let that happen. But I think it's really interesting because I think, you know, Sunny, so much of that is like, there's the how to get started, but I also think there's the, like, is it like a Ron Popeil chicken machine? Do I just set it and forget it? Like, do I not, do I just get to sit here and be like, well, then Sonny's going to tell me what the price is. <laughs> it's going to be a billion dollars and I'm going to be rich. No, no. The idea is that no, we'll, you, you, you set, because the idea is we don't want you just to buy and hold it and let the price go up. We want you to actually use it for things. There's actually things you can use crypto for. Yep. That's really 
that's the, the piece. It's not just to make a lot of money and have the price go up. Because again, there's 5,000 other tokens, right? So maybe Bitcoin you want to just store and hold as a part of your asset portfolio, which is fine. But then what are you going to use Solana and all the other tokens for, right? And those are meant to play games and do the other fun things that are happening. Every yeah. new crypto products are launching every day. There's crypto credit cards, right? There's things like that. There's crypto loans. You can loans. buy a car with crypto. Yeah, you can do a lot of them. You can spend well, the, it, right? The problem is the whales and apes are just holding and they're not spending and there's no transactions. And that's really the issue, right? right. Because there's no transaction flow and that's the volume issue. Yep. So. And so the more people we can get on board who get on board the right way, though, who don't just buy it and hold it and say, it's not going up. What's going on? I want my money back. If you actually get into it to play a game or to do something else with it, you don't necessarily care about the price. You're actually using it more. And I'd rather yeah, have a lot more yeah. users than just one big whale sitting around doing nothing with it, right? That's very important for the industry. Well, there's darn apes that are doing nothing with it. And then too. there's NFTs, right? So should I go buy an <laughs> NFT? Well, are you trying to buy it because it looks good on your wall or you just want to make money on it, right? No, there's I want the exclusive access to the Amon Hotel yeah. in New York. I mean, yeah, what are you talking about? That's really what the, that's really what this Rain game is. I want the first Dorito. Yes. 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 I don't know anything about the party scene. Don't, don't <laughs> so so all that. the brands now, like, you know, Doritos, Budweiser, Adidas, Nike, etc. they're all trying to do NFTs yeah. and projects, right? But you as a user saying, which one should I go with? How do I use it? What am I really doing it? And that's what we're trying to help people with, right? To get, again, onboard new users in the crypto and to help the current existing users do more with their crypto. That's really what the sweet spot is. And if we yeah. do that right, again, you know, Capital One and Wells Fargo aren't teaching people how to use credit cards really or what credit cards. They say, go to Credit Karma and they'll explain everything for you. And then they can sign up for a credit card that way. So same thing yeah. we're trying to yeah. do, right? Yep. Very it's interesting. That okay, so real quick, regulation. Everybody hates that word, but we need yeah. it at some point. I'm a free market capitalist. Uh, what is the right level of regulation so that we can all play fairly? Right. Yeah. So again, at BitPay, and BitPay was a payments company. And you know, I was there in 2014 when it was really the wild, wild west, right? And they are the regulators. You know, they had the New York Bit license, and the BitPay was one of the first companies to get the New York Bit license. So that was a great thing. And I guess California is trying to do the same thing now. Believe it or not, the crypto companies want regulations. Okay, because then it makes it takes us out of the gray area. And Nobody then every in the gray area, agree. And then yeah. everyone can start using us, right? So that's why the ETF comes out. It, it takes it out of the shadows into the real area. Because a lot at Bitped work with you know big merchants like Microsoft and AT and T, and they'd ask us, "Is it legal?" And like, well, it's, you know, show me the rule. It's, it's, you know, like, <laughs> and some people might not want to work with you then if it's not 100%. If it doesn't say crystal clear that this is legal to use crypto as a payment option, and all that kind of stuff, it's hard to get you know customers sometimes that way. If the government, no matter how onerous they make it is, which is worse, that's what we said for BitLice, it was very onerous, but it puts it out of the gray area that we're now licensed to operate in New York City, New York, which is great. If we can do that in America, not do it per state, it'd make life a lot easier. And I think the government ah. knows that. And I think the government knows that right now. And, and I don't think the government's trying to ban Bitcoin or crypto. They're just trying to figure out what is that happy medium spot. And, the pro you know, of course, the government can't agree on anything is the problem, right? And that's well, the there whole is, issue. There's some fear in the devaluation of the dollar, right? They're worried about that, right? Because that's really what they have or what might happen as a reserve currency. So, but the country-backed cryptos might, you know, CBCs are actually going to play a role. Right? Yeah, CB, but again, those things all take a long time. To, you know, no, I always have a you saying. Have time to wait. <laughs> no, nothing, nothing happens fast in fintech, right? And that's ah. kind of. And especially involving government-issued coins. I mean, this is a long process. Except for speech. Nothing happens fast in the spirit. <laughs> So, okay. Well, this is great. We got Sunny Singh, co-founder and CEO of Beluga. Thank you so much for being so on the show. Cool. Giving us the update on really where crypto is happening. What is the next crypto event you're going to be at? Uh, probably. Satoshi? 
maybe it's Sochi, Sochi Roundtable. I'm not sure yet. Actually, I just got back from our, our team member was at the Solana Breakpoint Conference in Amsterdam. Yes. I heard that was great. Yeah, I'm a little too old now. I kind of stay behind the scenes now with the young kids go to all these different conferences every week now. I just go to the one or two of the big ones, and that's kind of it. But but next year, now that you're promising Dungeon and Dragon parties in well, that's, penthouses that's as part of crypto, oh, man, I gotta I bring my like ten sided dice. Like, I'll be bringing my own ten sided dice. So. Yeah. Right. I have no idea what you're talking about, Sonny. This sounds like a great industry conference. To there go you go. To. Well, I that's need to get it. on these lists. And, and, and next year, when Bitcoin hits a hundred thousand, you you heard it here first on the We're prediction, all go right? Fuck so wild. you know, well, yeah. you, you can you can uh, we'll come back and celebrate then. Okay, we'll play some Dungeons and Dragons, but it, it'll be a lot of fun in the industry. Crap, we're just gonna get it done. <laughs> it's awesome. Hey Sonny, thanks for being on the show. Happy Friday and uh you know look forward to catching up with you. I'll see you Great. next week. Thanks very much. Take I'll care. So, bye bye. Wow. Super interesting. I like I because I don't know. I'm like it like I don't do I have a Bitcoin? Is it a billion dollars? Because that okay. <laughs> I don't know. Sunil, Sunil, do, you do you have, have any Bitcoin? Bitcoin that's a million dollars? You know, I do, but I have to say, like, hearing Sonny speak makes me think I'm way behind right now. You know, he's talking about those 400 like power Beluga. users. Com, right? You know, he was talking about those 400 power users. I'm definitely, I'm definitely in the other camp. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. Oh, You're at oh. 401. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We'll, have get, we'll have to get all, all of us together. I'll, I'll leave. <laughs> Sonny, if you're checking the uh, chat, check out my, uh, I'll leave you a number to text me. Sunil, I oh, think what's man. really important is we have to get to everyday Dharma if we're going to be in this Bitcoin world. It's crazy. Oh, <laughs> yeah. So, so we're going to need both. You know, um, oh, he's is. the author of Everyday Dharma, Eight Essential Practices for Finding Success and Joy and uh, Everything You Do. So, um, yeah, so do a quick intro. Uh, Sunil lost his Dharma and then discovered it again. What the hell about what Dharma is? Not everyone knows what Dharma is. But as an author and visiting scholar at Harvard Medical School, Sunil studies the most extraordinary people on the planet to discover and share simple actionable habits to lift our performance and deepen our daily sense of purpose. His work has been featured on major outlets, including CNBC, the TED Talk you got to check out, and New York Times. Here's a trailer for season two. We got to check that out at some point. We should play that. Uh, I don't think we can do that here, but you can follow him on Twitter or X at Sunil, S-U-N-E-E-L, definitely an early adopter of Twitter. So welcome to the show. Hey, Ray, Liz, nice to be here. Oh, it's so great to have you. And thanks for taking the time. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with a confession. So when Ray just said, hey, there are probably a lot of people out there that don't know what Dharma is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But let me ask you this. So let's you, start there. I'm going to yeah. start there. Let's start there. And by the way, Liz, I have a question for you. Do, have yeah. you heard the word Dharma before? I have. Okay, But yeah. like in a lot of different contexts, right? Exactly. Like as a project, you know, like as, as you know. Or you kind of hear it in passing, but there, I'll be very honest, I haven't necessarily had it grounded either in like where the word has come from or yep. where it's relevant today. Yep. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, it's, it's, look, a, it's a reality field. Think about it that way. No, it's kicking. <laughs> right. And look, even like as like an Indian American who kind of grew up around the word Dharma, I got confused about what it is because I hear it in so many different contexts, right? I mean, you yeah. hear Dharma talked about from buddhist monasteries to burning man camps uh, so you know the way that the way that i think about dharma is that it is your essence it's this thing inside of you that really wants to express itself like it's very clear to me that sunny just even listening to him speak there's something very connected to him about crypto right and and he is expressing that into the world and that's the key is that when you're expressing your essence you come alive in a brand new way you feel confident you feel creative you feel caring um and when you don't 
you can feel lost and you can feel depleted. And I, I think, you know, look, it's no, it's no sort of uh, insight that so many people are feeling that way right now. Right. I mean, it, over half of us are actively disengaged with what we do each day. Uh, over 80% of us are in active search for what we're going to be doing next. We're talking about people mm. in the workforce right now. The number one predictor right now of your mental health for most American workers is your job is what you do each day. And yet the vast majority of us aren't enjoying what we're doing. So I think it's been this reset moment, I think for so many people. And, um, you know, while I think the tendency is always to look for like, what's the cutting edge technique, what's, what's new. There's also a lot of wisdom that is in the past. We, we can look back in order to look forward. Dharma is this practice that's been passed down by generations uh, for thousands of years from East to West, from ancient to modern. And the goal of this book was really to take this practice that has worked for so many people, including great leaders that have been all over the world, that have changed things around them, and to break down what their habits were into very specific things that you can put into practice right now. Wow. Start with Interesting. that. Yeah. I mean, when you think about this and, and the habits that are there, uh, one of the areas that you talk about is you know work, right? What's the difference between the future of work and what you call the future of worth? Mm. Which is a very interesting distinction. Oh, yeah, there's yeah. a difference. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting for us to be having this conversation, right? Because we're we're we all have roots in Silicon Valley. I got my start as as a founder of a tech startup called Rise, which was a healthcare company. And yep, yep. we sold that. It's now owned by Amazon. Uh, you know, so but and so future of work has been sort of our obsession, right? Um, but there there is something that I think got left behind, which is the future of worth. And and the distinction that I make when I think about these is really the difference between outer success and inner success. So outer success being, you know, achievement, status, wealth, a, a lot of the things that I think that we sort of think about when we, we try to, you know, framework out what we want from our lives. But inner success is, is I think, meaning. It's, it's joy. It's happiness. And I think both are important. You know, I'm not here to be sort of one of these people that says you need to renounce your, your ambition, your, your achievements. I don't think that's the case at all. You know, in fact, if anything, I think I'm, I'm, you know, pretty wildly ambitious myself, but I think that there, the, 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 the misperception, and I think that this is proven through sort of science research, but I think also has been something that's been talked about for, for millennia is that outer success will not lead you to inner success, right? You can have all of the, the status, you can have all the wealth, all the achievements, and it's not necessarily going to fill your cup in the way that we perceived it would. Um, Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar at Harvard University calls this the arrival fallacy, the arrival yeah. fallacy, which is this idea that we are going to reach this moment of arrival. You know, we're going to sell our startup. We're going to, you know, have, have, have enough money in the bank. We're going to have hit enough achievements that all of a sudden we're going to flip the switch and we're going to now feel happy. This lasting sense of joy. You never want enough. It's a humanist thing. You always want more. So. There is no moment of arrival. Yep. There is no yeah. moment of arrival because every time we hit a target, the goalpost moves again. That's not to say that you should leave the game. That's not to say that the game is not worth it or that you should not have drive. But it's more about sort of flipping the flow of things rather than trying to live a life where you're trying to have outer success lead you to inner success. You can reverse the flow to having inner success lead you to outer success. Mm. And what that means on a practical level is really, really getting clear about what your essence is, about what it is you want to share with the world and going after goals that are worthwhile, even if 
the metrics at the end don't prove out, right? So the things yeah. that would be worthwhile, even if you don't hit the targets, because when you can reverse the flow in that way, what that does is it gives you, I think, something to live for each day. You're not waiting for a moment of arrival. You're actually getting joy from the journey, right? Which I know sounds a little bit cliche, but it's very true. But the other thing that happens, which sometimes isn't as clear to us, is that when you are enjoying the journey, right? And we hear this from so many of the people that you've interviewed here on the show. When you are enjoying the journey, the level of creativity, the level of energy, the, the level of collaboration that you bring to it becomes much, much higher. All the things that we yeah. associate with success, you are bringing more into that pool. And that you know, counterintuitively sometimes actually increases your probability for outside success. So, so it's so, it's so interesting that you say it because you said something earlier where, you know, there's so many people today looking for new jobs. They're not happy where they are right now. They're all, yeah. you know, and there are studies after studies when they go talk to those people and say, okay, why are you looking for a new job? You get some people who say, well, I want more money. Oh, I need to support my, like, there's always the financial stuff that kind of comes up. Right. Yeah. But there's this new undercurrent. I think I want to say there was an ADP study that said it was upwards of 45% of people they spoke with said it didn't feel right. Yeah. Right. Like that the, that the decision for them to look was more about a feeling than yeah. about financial, which was really, which I always found really interesting, but I read that. And then I work with this guy, that guy, right, that guy, right there, that guy, right there, <laughs> who when Ray, I will, I'm going to tattle on Ray for a second. Um, when Ray reaches out to all of us who are analysts at Constellation, the first question that Ray will ask me on a one-on-one -on -one is, are you still having fun? Yeah. It's not, how's your work going? Are you getting everything done? What are you doing with our clients? Where are you are with your business? Those are never the first questions. Ray's first question to me is always, are you still having fun? And so that's like, when you were talking, that's the first thing that came to my mind, which was like, yeah. not everyone gets to be in that scenario where they're given that space to say, hey, I am having fun, or I don't know what my dharma is, or I do know what my dharma is. So if someone is not in an enviable position, like I, I feel like I'm in a very blessed position where I get the space to explore that. If someone isn't in that position or don't feel like they're in that position right now, how do they go about the process of starting to actually say, like, I've got a Dharma and this is what it is? Yeah. Yeah. Well, can I can I just say first, like, I love that. Like, I love what you just shared. And I don't know if you shared it with Ray before, but it's like a, it's witnessing a beautiful moment because how rare is that? Right. Yeah. How rare is that that, that 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 two colleagues sort of share that about each other? You know, it, it, it is special. And Ray, I think you should really, really take that one to heart. Um, I, I do. The, I the, the person the person that we know influences our mental health even more than a doctor or a therapist is your boss. For most of us, that's the number one person, right? And and so what's interesting about that, and this gets to your question, Liz, is that you know, as 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 managers, as leaders, we learn a lot about how to manage time. We learn a lot about how to manage talent, but what we don't necessarily know how to manage is energy, right? And Ooh. if you look at people who fizzle out in their lives and in their careers, very rarely are they running out of time or talent. What they're almost always running out of is energy, right? They just get too exhausted. Yeah. I think you see that a lot with entrepreneurs, right? We know we know people who mm. could, could who could keep going. The idea is valid, right? And and it needs some work, but it's valid. 
but ultimately you just run out of steam, you know, and, and this happens everywhere, everywhere across all walks of life. In fact, I really do believe right now that, that we are in an exhaustion epidemic and, and getting to your question, Liz, like, I think that you were, you were saying that it's more about a feeling than the finances. I think that feeling is really energy. I, I'm not getting mm. energy. I'm not getting energy from what it is that I'm doing. And so I want to go find something that's going to give me that energetic boost. And and your boss has so much, so much to do with that, right? You asked about sort of what are some of the things that we can start to think about when it comes to our Dharma. The good news, I think, about Dharma is that I, I used to believe that it was this kind of like thing that you needed to go on an expedition for, like go climb the Himalayas, backpack, <laughs> pray like, love moment, yeah, go. yeah, in, in yeah. order to find your Dharma. And I did those things, you know. I, I backpacked through Bhutan. I, I did, I did all the, you know, I, I lived in a village in Africa. But the thing is that I think that what I realized over time is that your Dharma is already inside of you. You don't need to go looking for it. It's less of a transformation and it's more of a revelation. It's mm. kind of like Michelangelo um, would see a block of marble and he would say the sculpture is already inside. Yes. I, I simply just have to chisel away the layers that have gotten in its way. And your dharma, your, this essence, is very much the same way. It, is, it has been something that has been a part of you for a very, very long time. But it's very easy for that to get hidden. It gets hidden under priorities. It gets hidden under circumstances. Mm. It gets hidden under other people's judgments, other people's expectations. And eventually, it is it is far too simple for us to lose sight of who we are because we're caught in the day-to-day -day grind. There are some simple sort of questions, inquiries in the book that I think help us start to chisel away. I, and, and one of them that I think is, is really simple, I mean, there's, there's, there's many in the book, but one that's really simple is what are the brightest spots of your past week of your past month, if you start to look at the elements of your day at a really deep level of like, what were the moments that actually brought me that energy, brought me that joy? And then what was it about those? What was, what is it specifically about those that made me light up? And the reason that's important is because we're all subject to what neuroscientists call hedonic adaptation, hedonic adaptation. And at a practical day-to-day -day level, what that means is that when something good happens in our life, we tend to celebrate it for a quick moment and then we move on to what's next and then what's next after that. So the point being that we reflect deeply on moments that don't go our way, but we don't reflect <laughs> as deeply on moments that do go our way. Oh, wow. But it's the moments that do go our way, these bright spots, where actually they provide these little windows into the essence of who we are. Yeah. So, so, so the, 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 the sort of practical habit here is taking little bits of time when something does give you that energetic feeling, right? And noticing it noticing it, sticking with it for just a little bit or reflecting on it later on in your day or later on in your week and saying, what was it about that thing? Because over time, you'll start to see a pattern of where these bright spots occur and you'll start to know where you want to double down your efforts. You want to know when you want to start expanding these bright spots. That might take you to a different job. It might. But oftentimes when I work with executives, when I work with teams and leaders that are thinking about shifting their careers and we go into the bright spots, what they realize is actually possible for them to amplify the bright spots, even in the position that they're in right now. They don't need to leave their job. They don't need to leave their industry. They don't need to leave the workforce. They can start to amplify those right there where they are. This is really insightful. And it feels like there's a lot of Eastern philosophy here, right? Hmm. That's going in there, like the deep Eastern thinking, you know, very, very spiritual, very, very um, philosophical based. 
Uh, but then you put a whole bunch of like Western takeaways into this mix, which is awesome, right? Because like it's, it's hard, it's hard to get into that. Like I have a very Buddhist family, right? And and mm. same thing, like there's a lot of teachings that come that way. But then I never get the Western science aspect of it. Like, hey, how does it work? What does it really come back? Meanwhile, to? Meanwhile, I'm I'm over here thinking everything you just said of like celebrate the bright spot, and you're you're like you're not going to double down into the like that. I'm like I'm like should I have mentioned that I'm like korean and so they're like we're culturally <laughs> we like we celebrate our ability to stay in the dark spot like yeah we, we're like everybody come here we're all in the dark spot let's yeah. look at all the things that went wrong like it's <laughs> like literally part like ethnically part of the culture to yeah. like wallow in the han of everything that's ever happened generationally yeah yeah and you know look to 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 you know for liz i'm the same way i mean like i grew up in an indian american immigrant family we were a very hard charging you know like it was but i and, and i don't think the lesson here is to shame that part of ourselves Right. And, I, and I think that's yeah. kind of where I think it's where things sort of go wrong when we talk about sort of like Buddhist or Eastern is like you, somehow the lesson, the takeaway can be you should not want things in your life or you should not mm -hmm. want to sort of have drive or be ambitious. And that's not that's not it at all. But there are certain techniques that I think that we have brought into our lives and conditioned to use that may no longer be serving us as well, right? Mm -hmm. And and what and the and the idea isn't to like you know try to like shed those things because it takes a while to do that. But the idea is to to start leveling the playing field, right? To start leveling the playing field, to start thinking about you know not just this idea of outer success, but thinking about inner success. What that what that really does mean to you? Because look, I mean, like I've spent the past ten years studying some of the most extraordinary people on the planet, right, across all walks of life, and and you know I host a show now, which is sort of like Anthony Bourdain for leaders, right? Yep. And I, I, I travel around, I meet these great people, awesome, and it's amazing. I, I love what I do. It's 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 the greatest job in the world. The thing that was unsurprising to both of you is that there was a lot of failure along the way. And a lot of that failure for a lot of these people who reached the top of their game is not necessarily written about. It's not talked about as much. When I asked them what it is that they learned about those failures, right? It's not, hey, I, I decided to come back with a, a different customer acquisition strategy this time around. No. It was, it was, I took a reflective look at myself. And I started to act, ask myself, what are the things that I want to do internally that are going to allow me to better succeed externally? And I think every single leader, every single great leader goes through that sort of process. What do I want to start doing internally that is going to allow me to succeed externally? Because I think those are the habits, those are the habits that ultimately not only just pay off for ourselves, but they allow us to lead others in, in a way that like yeah. make us memorable and ultimately, I think, allow them to do their best work. And one of the things that you talk about is slowing down to speed up. Hmm. Let's go there for a little bit. What do you mean by that? Because it sounds counterintuitive at first. Yeah, yeah. You know, there was a, um, a great Olympic sprinter named Carl Lewis. And oh, yeah. Carl, and Carl Lewis, uh, you know, amazing in so many ways. But also unique. And one of the ways that he was unique is that he would always start in the back of the pack, but somehow right. he would end up finishing first place, which was very unusual. They come from behind and especially in sprinting, there's not a lot of time in the race. So usually if you start in the back, you're not going to finish first, but he did. And people didn't know why. So there was another coach that started this to, to really study his behaviors. And what he found is that Carl Lewis was constantly moving at 85%. He was, he was starting at 85%. 
He was going at 85%. He was finishing at 85%. So while other sprinters were kind of going out the gate really, really quickly and losing steam, Carl Lewis would then whoosh by them one by one and he would win the race. You know, the the 85% rule is something that then expanded. It started out in the sports world. It expanded. And you hear you start to hear actors and 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 you know creatives talk about it. But then in business, all of a sudden you started to hear this 85% rule. It's almost been this kind of underground movement. Um, and a very, very important one. But ultimately, what it comes down to is this: we have been conditioned to believe that maximum pressure leads to maximum results. Mm. Maximum internal pressure leads to maximum results. If you want something good, you better be intense. You yep. better put, you better exert a lot of pressure and intensity. That has been debunked. It has yep. been debunked not just by Carl Lewis as an anecdote, but it's been debunked by, by many studies. There was a study out of the City University in London that studied 50,000, over 50,000 people across all different walks of life in the workforce and found that extra intensity, extra pressure was actually not getting better results. And in fact, could actually be a hindrance over time. The the lesson here is 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 I think the practical sort of lesson here is that again we've been conditioned that maximum pressure equals maximum maximum results. When you're walking into a situation, ask yourself how much intensity do I really need to bring to this moment? Like I'm guessing, you know, for for, for the two of you with your one on ones, right? Like they sound like delightful experiences. You talk about fun and you talk about play. I'm guessing Ray is not coming in and like and like like with this like intense yeah. sort of like you There's know, my thirty page deck of how you yeah, suck. Yeah, 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 that's, right? not, yeah I'm guessing that's not. Yeah, that's not what we're doing. That's not the vibe. <laughs> that's not the vibe. And look, every once in a while, maybe a hundred percent pressure intensity is called for. Yeah. But for the vast majority of situations, including work situations, 100% intensity, 100% effort, you know, pressure is not quite necessary. And the leap of faith that I would ask anybody listening to take is, what if you lowered that a little bit before you walk into another, like you walk into a big moment, you walk into a presentation, you walk into a big team meeting. What if you ask yourself, how much pressure do I actually need to bring to this moment? And then dial it down to that to that level, right? If it's 80%, bring 80% in and then allow 20% to just kind of roll, like allow it to flow, right? And just see what that does. And then ask yourself at the end of that meeting, did I get like fewer results or did I perform in a way that was less compelling simply because I lowered my pressure? Testing that out yourself and coming to the insight that I think most people do come to, which is that sometimes lowering the pressure actually gets you better results can be a very freeing thing right? Because what it does is it gives us back some energy, right? It gives us back mm. some energy. It lowers our anxiety. Studies say that it will lower sort of our rates of depression. It will increase our emotional resilience. There's a lot of benefit to just starting to loosening your grip a little bit and realizing that it's actually increasing your overall performance. Yeah. I, it's, it's so interesting that you say that because I think a lot of times when people feel they aren't performing, like I'm not Carl Lewis, Right. And I, I, I want to be Carl Lewis. And, yeah. you know, like, I feel like that's where I want to be. We focus on the skills. We focus on the training. Yes. Right. Like, hey, Carl Lewis went to the gym. Carl Lewis had these shoes. He did this to his hair. Like, we focus on either the surface stuff or we focus on, like, the tangible things we can articulate, like skills. Things yeah. I can work on. But you talk about skills that are just totally useless right <laughs> like things that you're just like super overrated people you probably just don't need them like share a little bit about that because i think while yeah. we get so focused on the checklist of things yeah i think your point and i what i what i love about what you're saying is that 
it's we're probably spending more of that energy, more of that currency that we should be keeping in reserve so that we can be more creative, we can be more present, we can be at the right intensity and we could be at the right energy, yeah. but we're so focused on the checklist, I feel like. I think that's such a great point, Liz. I mean, I, and, and to be honest, like I'm, I'm coming at this from the point of view of a student and, and not an expert because I focused on the checklist. Like my background yeah. was in product development you know, and I, I, you know, I was, I was, I was, I was in the backlog every day, baby. Right. Like it was like, it was like, what are we getting done? What's a P1? What's a P2? What's a P3? Like that was my world. But as I went out and started to study great people, you know, who, when I kind of shifted from entrepreneurship to writing, my, my, my sort of process was reaching out to all these people that I admired. Oscar-winning filmmakers, celebrity chefs, leaders of large iconic companies, mm. and and for some reason they started talking to me, and then one thing led to another, and it continued to sort of build from there. And and now I've got sort of like these, you know, hundreds, if not you know, low thousands numbers of data points from conversations with with all these folks. I realized that the game-changing habits for them were not the surface-level things. It was mm. it was, you know, you, you may have heard the quote that character is how we behave when nobody is watching. Yep. Right. And ultimately. If you think about what it is that drives somebody to the top of a game, whatever game that is that they're yeah. playing, it is character, right? So we need to understand what it is that they are doing when nobody is watching. What Again, what are they doing internally in order oh. to succeed externally? So let me give you an example because that might be helpful, which is that like if you look at sort of – we talked about energy. How do, how do great leaders keep their energy high? One of the things I realized is that it's not vacations vacations while they're a wonderful instrument like they're a wonderful thing you can go way to connect with family everybody's going to palm palm desert next week and he's going to connect with family and friends see sunny out there maybe one of the things that's kind of interesting though that we know is that most people return and feel more stressed out one week after vacation than they right. do one week before vacation right and yet vacations have still especially in the west been this tool this instrument for burnout Again, wonderful things to do, but they're not very effective. What is much more effective is what I call in the book practicing rhythmic renewal, rhythmic renewal, mm -hmm. which is that you're not waiting for long breaks. You're not waiting for vacations in order to get moments of rest. When you look at high performers, they're taking frequent focused breaks every single day. In fact, get this, the average high performer that we study is taking somewhere around eight breaks every single day, eight. I got to go, which right? Like, which oh, I know, I know, exactly. Better. Which, which, like, I, I know, go. it sounds. I know, it's, it's like, but like, the thing is, it sounds extraordinary, right? Given the world that we live in, it's so back yeah. to back to back. Like, as soon as we click off of this one link, we may be clicking onto another link, right? As soon as we like finish up one meeting, it's like we're already late for the next one. But the model that I that I offer in the book is what I call the fifty-five-five model. Fifty-five-five. It kind of works like Pomodoro if you're familiar with that. But yeah, yeah, yeah. The idea yeah. is that for every fifty-five minutes of work, you're building in five minutes of focused, deliberate rest. 55 to five. And if you can't do five, do four, do three, do two. But the key is that you're transitioning each hour with this idea of coming back to yourself. And mm. if you're listening, I'm guessing like if you're watching this, you're probably the type of person that has a busy schedule. And you might be asking yourself like, look, I barely have enough time in my day. So no. how is this going to help me if I'm shrinking each hour in terms of productivity? But what the science tells us is that each of those five minutes is going to make the other 55 minutes far more effective, far more collaborative, far more creative, far more energetic, awesome. all of the qualities that we associate with success, right? So give it a shot whenever possible. It's not always possible. Whenever it's possible, 
build five minutes of rest into every hour. And what you what you might find is that you start to shift your mindset from this rest being a reward for what you have done and realize that rest is actually a preparation for what you are about it's to requirement. do. Mm, that's yeah. awesome. No, it's amazing. So we're here with Sunil Gupta, more importantly, the writer, author of Everyday Dharma, Eat Essential Practices for Finding Success and Joy in Everything You Do. The book's endorsed so by amazing folks, Reed Hoffman, Allison Levine, uh, with Daniel Pink, who I just saw a few days ago, Sarah Salzburg, Andy Dunn, and more. The book came out September 5th, 2023. Please get it on Amazon and where books are sold. So thank you so much for being on the show. We'll talk to you in a little bit. So right, thanks, thanks so much. Neil. Thank you, Liz. Amazing. I think I, I, okay, so I now think I have now a laundry list of things. No, yeah. I have a laundry list. It's like every time I end up hashtag hosting for Vala, I end up with another thing on my list, right? So last time I got to join you, it was the great tip of instead of sending an agenda, send questions. Yep. Like, like phrase your agenda as questions so that everyone who comes to a meeting has answers to your questions rather than questions about your agenda. And so now I'm going to add on to that and then take five minutes out of that hour-long meeting because that's your five minutes in the 55-5 rule. I, that's awesome because no, now, um, yeah, that's what, no more hour-long agendas. It's going to be 55 minutes of questions and then five minutes for me. That's how we're working our day. I like it. This works. This works very for very me. Cool. You found your dharma. Very, very cool. I, let's hope. Gosh. <laughs> gosh. Oh, so. my gosh. I, either that or I'm just going to go on my lifelong quest. I figure the the Ganeshas that I all picked up from India earlier this year, they all sit on my bookshelf. So now I can just add the concept of Dharma to sit right there so that my Ganeshas who are supposed to help me write better are also doing that. I'm just that's just where we're gonna go. Well, we're we've got episode 344 next week. Hugo Sarah. No, was it next week? Are you two doing it next now, week? I don't 24, think November 24th. So Two weeks from now, we're back on 12-1, actually. No you're show. Off, yeah, you're off for Thanksgiving. Happy off for Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving, you two. We're so we're back on December 1st with Hugo Sarazen, CPO of UKG, Scott yes. Osman and Jacqueline Lane, CEO and president of 100 Coaches, author of Being Coming Coachable, and of course, Dr. Michelle R. King, author of How Work Works. Should be an action That's going to be a good one. Episode on future of work, employee experience, and of course, leadership. So... So yeah, so hey, it's, it's, if it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV. Join us every it's 11 a.m. 2 p.m. Eastern, of course. And of course, we'll see you on December 1st. So have a great Thanksgiving holiday. Thank you, everybody. <laughs>